This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, which is not a part of the panhandle. We're actually in a region known as the Big Bend. And while that may make sense if you look at a map, it could just as well be slang for the political process here. Today on Sunrise, a deep dive on Florida's Guardian program, as state lawmakers try to figure out how to respond when people take advantage of the wards they are supposed to be protecting. It's a response to the death of a 75-year-old man after his professional guardian entered a do-not-resuscitate order against his wishes. A committee in the State House of Representatives approves a bill creating the Elder Abuse Fatality Review Teams in each of the state's judicial circuits. Their job will be identifying gaps in services and support for seniors and recommending systematic improvements to prevent elder abuse and deaths in the future. Our studio guest today is Joe Clements, the founder of Strategic Digital Services in Tallahassee. While some of us may be happy to hear about it, he says Twitter's decision to ban political ads is really bad. In fact, he thinks it's worse than Facebook's decision to allow politicians to lie in their advertising. We'll also check your calendar of events, which frankly is hardly worth it today, and catch up with Florida Man, including an assault by an unarmed man. And I mean that literally. The dude has no arms. But that didn't stop him from stabbing a tourist. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Friday, November 8th. In the aftermath of a scandal in central Florida, the Secretary of the Department of Elder Affairs is trying to assure state lawmakers that they're cracking down on guardians who are taking advantage of the people they are supposed to be protecting. Secretary Richard Prudhomme says guardians are essential in a state with so many seniors. Currently, we actually have five and a half million people over the age of 60 in Florida, and we have the highest population percentage of 65 plus in the nation. Our senior population outnumbers the senior population of 20 other states combined, as well as the total population of Alaska, Delaware, both Dakotas, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Wyoming combined as well. By 2030, that population is going to increase to 7.6 million, an increase of more than 38%. So there are challenges, obviously, in promoting the health and well-being and while this growing and increasingly diverse older population. Guardians are the people who step in when someone cannot handle day-to-day life decisions because of dementia, physical incapacity, or intellectual disability. Usually it's a family member, but if the person doesn't have family, Prudhomme says they rely on volunteer guardians. A trusted and qualified guardian can provide years of support and protection for an individual by managing his or her finances, arranging for health care, coordinating residential support services, and performing other essential life tasks. However, when a full plenary guardianship order is imposed, that protected individual loses most of his or her basic rights, including the right to make medical decisions, to buy or sell property, to manage their own money, to marry, or even to choose where to live. So it's safe to say that aside from incarceration or civil commitment, or even some say the death penalty, potentially no other court process infringes upon an individual's personal liberties more significantly than the appointment of a guardian. The guardian therefore must perform their duties properly, ethically and in the complete interest of their ward. And in fact, most guardians are selfless, dedicated individuals who play an important role in safeguarding vulnerable individuals, but the court must monitor the guardian and the arrangement in order to protect the individual from abuse, neglect and exploitation. A crooked guardian can be a nightmare, and the poster child for the problem is a professional guardian from Orlando by the name of Rebecca Fierley. One of the wards she was supposed to be protecting was 75-year-old Stephen Stryker, who died after she filed a DNR order for his medical care. DNR means do not resuscitate. It prevented hospital staff from performing life-saving procedures when Stryker needed care. 
State investigators concluded the Guardian entered that DNR order without his consent, and she's been forced to resign in more than 100 Guardian cases in Florida. State Representative Spencer Roach of North Fort Myers told Prudhomme that's really not enough. Why is this person not in jail right now? Because what, what I'm reading here, it's quite clear the investigation is, is closed, and it says here, I'm reading the introductory paragraph, violated Florida guardianship law, violated Florida criminal code, violated your own guardian standards of practice, this person is still walking around. If this, if this were my father that had perished due to her inaction, gross incompetence and criminal activity, I'd want her on death row, but she's still out walking around. I, I think that's wrong. There were a number, at least two other complaints made about this guardian. Curious to know if you've done any internal review to find out why these earlier complaints were not acted upon, because if they have, this gentleman may still be alive today. We've actually uh, acted on all uh, con uh, concerns raised by uh, this individual. Uh, this report, obviously, is just one of those investigations. There are others concerning this individual that we can make available to the committee to show uh, the results of that. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement has acknowledged a criminal investigation is underway. While that plays out, Prudhomme says he's cleaned house at OPPG, the Office of Public and Professional Guardians, and they're clearing out the backlog of complaints. I will tell you the recent focus on guardianship is a result of the egregious actions by a professional guardian that resulted in the death of one of her wards. So clearly must, must, more must be done to enhance the structure of accountability for guardians, including monitoring compliance with established standards of practice and ensuring that guardians are acting in the best interests of the wards. Families, local communities, public officials, law enforcement and the courts must all work together to prevent all forms of exploitation. Legislation is being proposed to address issues of concern, namely the issuing of DNRs, conflicts of interest, and, and guardianship uh, compensation. Additionally, through the improvements I'm making within our role in guardianship, we're restoring the public trust and integrity to Florida's guardianship system, and we're returning professionalism, honor, and pride to professional guardians and ethical guardianship. There are hundreds of professional guardians across the state who are doing things right. In fact, many of them go above and beyond and they represent those who have no one else appropriate to care for them. They take on pro bono cases and serve with integrity, and I want to thank them for the dedication and commitment. As I said, there are many excellent guardians out there who do favor standards of conduct and clear guidelines to follow and want guardianship to be respected and again as a noble industry, despite those bad actors that we're working to get rid of. Guardianship be a should be a process in place to help, not hurt our seniors and other vulnerable populations and we will continue to do everything possible under the law to ensure this is true. A legislative group is already working on the issue, and Prudhomme is asking the legislature to make major changes in guardianship laws. And if money is a problem, Representative Rick Roth of West Palm Beach says lawmakers will ante up. There's all kinds of things that we need to be doing a better job of. I would recommend to the secretary that, that you continue to push, push the envelope for more resources to try to do more preventative care because I think when you argue about privacy versus taking care of that abused uh, ward, I think we need to move the ball a little more towards watching out for the care of that abused ward because we are running into more problems. We're, we're, pro problems are not going away by themselves. They're, they're getting bigger. And speaking of seniors, the Children, Families, and Senior Subcommittee in the Florida House has approved House Bill 253 by Tampa Representative Fentrice Driscoll. Her bill authorizes the creation of elder abuse fatality review teams in each of the state's judicial circuits. 
Florida leads the nation in the population for seniors, unfortunately, because of aging and infirmities uh, and the mental and physical impacts that aging has on that population. That population is oftentimes more successful, susceptible to abuse. So HB 253 would create a pathway for elder abuse fatality review teams comprised of volunteers in each judicial circuit. The team only reviews closed files. Uh, and the goal of this is to identify potential gaps, deficiencies, or problems in the delivery of services to elderly persons by public and private agencies, which may be related to deaths reviewed by the team. The team has no investigative role beyond discussion within the team, and there is no fiscal impact to the circuit for the task force as the members serve voluntarily and without compensation. The elder abuse fatality review teams will have to submit an annual report to the Department of Elder Affairs, which in turn will submit a summary to the governor, the legislature, and the Department of Children and Families. State Senator Daryl Rousson of St. Petersburg filed legislation this week allowing surviving victims of abuse from the Dozier School for Boys to file claims against the state. Under Rousson's bill, a person claiming they are a victim must submit an application to the Department of State by September 1st of next year, including an affidavit stating the applicant was confined at either Dozier or the Okeechobee School for Juveniles between 1940 and 1975 during which time they were abused by school personnel. The bill is a response to years of investigations uncovering rampant physical, sexual, and mental abuse at the schools, as well as inaccurate death records of boys who died while in custody at the school and were buried in unmarked graves. Well, that didn't take long. One day after he announced he's running for the District 19 congressional seat in southwest Florida, State Representative Dane Eagle of Cape Coral announced he raised more than $100,000 during his first 24 hours. He was the first prominent Republican to jump into the race since incumbent Francis Rooney announced in October he will not run for a third term. Next up on Sunrise, a conversation about Facebook's refusal to fact-check political ads and Twitter's decision to ban them entirely. But first, we have an ad of our own. We all know that guy who says he knew Trump was going to win long before election night. Had he known about Predict It, he could have put his money where his mouth was and made a little extra cash in the process. Predict It is like the stock market for politics. You can buy and sell shares in future events and elections, both foreign and domestic. During the 2018 midterms, Predict It beat other national pollsters like Nate Silver in election night predictions, and it wasn't even close. It's easy and only costs a few bucks to get started. Sunrise listeners can get a special introductory offer by visiting predictit.org slash promo slash F-L-A-P-O-L. Next up on Sunrise, a conversation with Joe Clements. He's the co-founder of Strategic Digital Services. He's also one of the people you hear on the Of Record podcast. And Joe, you were sort of inspired by what's going on now in the, in the feud, not in the feud, but Facebook, Twitter, Facebook being all sorts of criticism mm -hmm. about them not or basically allowing lies in their political ads. Yeah. And Twitter, on the other hand, has gone the exact opposite direction, saying we're not going to accept any political, political ads. ads. And I understand you have some serious concerns about what Twitter's up to. Well, so not just Twitter. You know, I think what we have to look at this as is, is there's a, uh, there's sort of a civil war going on, but it's an information civil war, right? It's not, we're not firing shots. This isn't the 1800s. There, there's a real battle over control of information, who can say it? Who can they say it to? What can they say? And so this is playing out right now, most clearly in the big tech space. So Twitter, Facebook, Google come to mind. Now, Twitter's move on this uh, is 
Machiavelli and it's smart. They weren't making a lot of money on political ads. It was easy for them to do to throw Facebook under the bus. Uh, and, you know, Jack Dorsey, Twitter CEO, announced it uh, like 10 minutes into Facebook's quarterly earnings call. So Mark Zuckerberg had to deal with the questions on the call. And this ties in to, you said this, Facebook uh, Facebook saying it did not want to be responsible for fact-checking political ads. And of course, we know how this works on TV or radio. You can justify most things you want to say in a political ad. You just have to have some marginal backup, change the language around a little right. bit. There has to be an element of truth yeah. somewhere in the I don't know any consultant that's had an issue placing an argument in a TV ad or a radio piece. Maybe they have to massage the language a little, but you can do it. And right. certainly not in direct mail. No, direct mail is pretty much direct mail is the wild, wild west. west. And yeah. I'm, I'm convinced that's what the Russians are going to do this year: is just spend a million dollars on direct mail in the election. I got you. So how how would closing down Twitter close so, down the political discussion? Yeah, look, I, I think what we're we're seeing here is really unfortunate for uh, you, you know the democracy dollars. One of the things both sides agree on, which is rare is we need more outside voices. We don't want career politicians. We don't like the establishment. This is going on on both the left and the right. One of the reasons over the past 10 years, 12 years, really since Obama 08, you can say we've had this string of outsider candidates arise from not being known at all to being president of the United States or being in Congress or being in state house is because the tools available to find an audience that communicate a message uh, are really efficient. So, I would argue that Facebook and Twitter and Google, anything, it's its not more effective. It's not magic. It's just efficient. So if you have $50, you can spend $50 on a Facebook ad campaign, reach some people, grow your email list, raise some money in small dollar amounts, $20 here, $10 there, put that money back into your ad campaign and bootstrap a campaign from you know 50 or 100 bucks to winning public office out of nowhere. And I think that's a great thing for our democracy. And what happens if we shut down the ability to do that on Twitter, the ability to do that on Facebook and Google is now we say has a small campaign. Big campaigns have all the money in the world. They can spend inefficiently if they want. As we say small campaign, you really either need to raise the money to do TV, uh, direct mail. Uh, and so the price of entry to get a message out goes from 50 bucks where it is now to, you know, five, ten thousand dollars for a really small mail run. So social media is sort of like the bootstrap to get you up to the big leagues. Yeah, because it has no marginal cost to it, right? And it's targeted. So when you buy TV, well, I have to buy everybody in the cable zone or everybody in the broadcast area. When I buy mail, there's a direct marginal cost. It's 50 cents to print it, you know, 50 cents for the, uh, probably not, it's probably 20 to print it, 50 for the postage. Uh, with with digital, all you're paying for is, you know, bidding to show that impression. So there's no cost to show the additional impression other than you're competing against someone else in the market to show it. So if the Twitter CEO was sitting here across from you, what would you tell him? Uh, you know, so, you know, J Jack Dorsey has done uh, really interesting interviews uh, with Joe Rogan. He did, I think, four hours of them uh, on, on specifically this topic. And I, like, I applaud Jack Dorsey for being really transparent on Twitter's policies of policing language and what they'll allow on the platform. And it's a hard problem. So what I'm saying, this isn't an easy problem to solve. What speech do we allow? What speech do we not allow? Uh, you know, what I would say to Jack Dorsey if he was sitting here is, you know, this is bigger than some people in San Francisco and Washington, D.C. are mad at you personally and think you're a bad guy or think Mark Zuckerberg is a bad guy. This is, you know, every small campaign, you know, every you know, stay at home mom who's going to run for state representative every, uh, you know, 
gas station owner who wants to run for commissioner of agriculture, right? This is really the path that's proven to work over the past 10 or 15 years. And we've really moved from celebrating that uh, in the last two or three years where digital was great, you know, Obama did it, it was all hype, to fearing it in a really strange way to me. Okay. Well, the Russians can't hack radio or TV, so I think that Uh, may be part of the concern. So I would actually question that. Why can't they? Why can't they funnel money into a super PAC or into a PC and have someone buy TV for them or into a C4? Well, because you still have to go through a basic fact check for the mass media. Yeah, but what I would say on the fact checking is, uh, you know, one, that fact checking is super loose for the most part, right? Like I've never encountered an issue where we couldn't ultimately say what we wanted to say. uh, You just had to parse the language very carefully. You have to parse the language very carefully. and look, maybe there's value to that. Uh, and, you know, maybe what we should have is, you know, some and this is here's one of my other criticisms about this. Facebook has become in the last two years, the most transparent political advertising platform in the history of American politics. You can go. They have the Facebook ad transparency tool. You can type in the name of a Facebook page, the name of a person and see every ad that's been run by that entity going back seven years. Right now, it goes back to it'll ultimately keep for seven years. Look at how much they've spent, what they've said. So that is infinitely more transparency than is available in mail uh, and much more transparency than is available on even TV or radio where you really have to have, uh, you know, an aggregator or research group pulling that together to figure out what's running and who they were targeting, where it ran. Okay. And just basically bottom line, what's the bigger threat? Twitter saying no political ads or Facebook saying we don't care if you lie? No political ads uh, because no political... Look, the the amount of, you know, lying or falsehoods that that goes on on the Internet is infinite and it's going to continue (laughs) to happen regardless of whether Facebook takes your money or Twitter takes your money. Ninety five, ninety eight percent of what goes on in the political realm on both Twitter and Facebook are campaigns doing very basic stuff. Join our email list. Give ten dollars to support Elizabeth Warren. Uh, you know, watch our video to learn more about how you can stop human trafficking, things like this. And it's also uh, here's the other risk. It's also not apparent what is political. And there's many ways you can define this. You could say, all right, political is blackout period within 35 days of an election. Nothing political at all. You could say political is just direct advocacy for a candidate. Right. And leave issues on the table. Or you can say political includes all issues. But when you do that, well, now you can't communicate on climate change. You can't talk about LGBT rights. You're, you're incredibly limited on the types of conversation that can happen on the platform. There's not a whole lot in your political calendar today. The Florida Board of Chiropractic Medicine meets at 8.30 this morning at the Rosen Plaza on International Drive in Orlando. And the Florida Historical Commission meets at 9 this morning at the R.A. Gray Building in Tallahassee. And time once again for the further adventures of Florida Man. A Florida man who thought another driver was trying to kill him is now charged with aggravated assault after he admitted shooting at the wrong vehicle. Deputies in Pasco County say 24-year-old Dakota Haber and another driver both had a serious case of road rage after a confrontation in Odessa. A short time later, Haber thought the guy was following him, so he pulled out a handgun and fired five times. Three slugs hit the car, the driver was injured by shattered glass, and it turns out it wasn't the same guy. 
Finally, an unarmed Florida man is accused of stabbing a tourist with a pair of scissors held in his feet. 46-year-old Jonathan Crenshaw is a homeless street artist in Miami who does not have any arms. He uses his feet to paint and sells his work near tourist attractions in South Beach. Police say he stabbed a 22-year-old tourist twice. Crenshaw says it was self-defense because the man kicked him. The victim says all he did was ask for directions. That's it for today's installment of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee for Florida Politics, and we're back on Monday with a fresh batch of news nuggets.